Hi, everybody. I'm Janet Ross, and as Caleb said, I have lots of family members here. Raise your hand if you're related to me. Yeah. So <laughs> it's probably one of the reasons why I was asked to come. Um, the other reason would be I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Um, most of you probably know a social worker is a people helper. You'll find them wherever people may be suffering, um, anywhere from prisons to hospitals, schools, nursing homes. Most of my career I've spent in um, the adoption field, and then in the last four years I've worked as a psychotherapist. Um, my mouth gets dry when I what talk to people. What does that mean, psychotherapist? In groups, I mean. Um, a therapist. You guys know what that is. I provide mental health counseling. They know Thank what you. that is. <laughs> um, so recently I started my own private practice, so I'm out on my own just seeing clients, and I prefer the, the term client over patient, so you'll hear me um, say that, and that's just the people that I try to help. Um, so public speaking actually makes me really nervous. So can you guys all smile at me or something? All right, we're good. Do you know bouncing actually really helps calm you down? <laughs> and if I were eating, I would do it like this. <laughs> it's helping me. Um, so even though public speaking makes me nervous, I'm really good one-on-one. -on -one. Obviously, I can respond to people in crisis and help them through their stuff. Um, I wanted to do this for two reasons. One being, I think you guys, even if I don't know you, you're worth my time, you're worth my energy, you're worth me shifting my schedule for, um, you're worth the information that you're gonna hear tonight. Um, and so that's the main reason. And then the other reason is, I'm always encouraging clients to go outside their comfort zone. And I don't wanna be a hypocrite. <laughs> so this is me practicing what I preach. And by that I mean, Outside your comfort zone as far as like calculated risks, I'm not talking about reckless behavior. I'm talking about things that could help you grow, stretch you as a human, um, having hard conversations, talking in front of groups, trying something new, that kind of thing. Um, so we're talking about trauma, which is kind of a heavy topic. Um, but as Caleb already pointed out, if you haven't already experienced some form of trauma, you're likely to in your lifetime. Um, so I wanna normalize it and that all of us are going to or have experienced some level of trauma. And so we're gonna spend some time defining what that is, categorizing it a little bit, um, and then we're gonna talk about what happens in the body when you experience trauma. And then I'll give you a couple tools to take with you and then I'm gonna hand it over to Derek, this is my husband, as um, Caleb said, and he's gonna impart some hope. <laughs> so I get the heavy lifting. And, um, and he's gonna really infuse it with some Jesus, I told him, so. So, trauma, what is that? Um, trauma is a real or perceived experience that leaves a person feeling hopeless, helpless, or fearing for their life, survival, or safety. I wanna hone in on two things in that definition. Um, it's real or it's perceived. So even if what someone thought was gonna happen didn't happen, that's not so much what matters. What matters is what their felt experience was, what they thought was gonna happen, what they felt was gonna happen, how scared they were. The other thing I wanna hone in on is safety. That's a very all-encompassing word I'm using because we're not just talking about bodily harm, we're not just talking about 
of violent trauma. We're also talking about psychological trauma. And so anytime someone feels unsafe emotionally, or psychologically, um, of course, physically, that can create a trauma. The other thing I would add to that definition is typically a trauma like has a, a lasting effect in that it warps, it kind of twists the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see others sometimes, the way that we see the world around us, um, and it has a lasting impact on our, our beliefs as far as that goes. So in basic terms, trauma is anything we experience or perceive as being something we have no control over. Um, so let's talk about the four ways a person can experience trauma. The most obvious one would be they're the direct victim of, a, of an event. So they were mistreated, you know, they were bullied, they were physically injured. That's a pretty, I mean, we can all kind of agree on that. Another another category is they witnessed. So you witness someone being hurt. You witness someone um, being injured. Um, this could be watching a fight. This could be um, somebody in your life struggling with addiction. And you're not impacted, like, personally by that, but you're watching someone. And that can still impact your felt sense of safety. Um, another one would be, you know, a family member or clo uh, someone close to you. You know, they're struggling with something. It could be they lost their job, um, a sibling who has a chronic illness, and you're watching them go through that. Um, you know, there's more terms for this, like secondary trauma or vicarious trauma. Um, but the point is, it that feeling of fear comes, and that, fe that feeling of helplessness comes. And then the fourth... You guys are awesome in taking notes, so I'm trying to go slow enough for you to get it down. <laughs> this is, like, really good. Yeah. <laughs> You've trained them well. This is, like, the most educated youth group I've ever seen. I know. When we were youth leaders, they were, like, picking their nose and going to the bathroom a lot, and, and like, you guys are, like, academic. So <laughs> if job, you need you. me to repeat anything, just let me know. Um, and so the fourth category is listening to the details of a trauma. Um, so you hear about it, you know, sometimes in my field, you know, that can happen and that, you know, you're hearing people's traumas all the time. And so people that do what I do have to really take care of themselves and be able to process that because they're, they're kind of always taking in other people's traumas. So this could be watching the details of a trauma on TV. This could even come through media, like, um, the news, um, video games, the internet, um, those things can also be traumatizing. Um, are you guys tracking with me? Okay. So types of trauma, I mean, those are the four ways that you can experience trauma. Then we're going to break it down into like two levels of trauma. So type one is a singular event. It's, you know, you can pinpoint what happened, where it happened, who it happened to, you can draw, you know, a, di a direct correlation to what you're experiencing and what happened. You can nail it down. Type two would be, it's one type of exposure that happened multiple times. We're talking like two or three times. 
typically. Um, or it's an exposure to two different events. So that would be type two. So that would be maybe um, several instances of bullying. That could be several occasions someone was abused in some way. Um, but you can still pinpoint like when it happened, where it happened, who it happened to. Like there's still some clarity there. Type three, you can probably just put down toxic stress. This one's way more complex. Um, that we're talking about an overarching experience that someone has. Like they spent the majority of their childhood in a very stressful environment. And so their, their traumas are very much layered. There's like, you, they can't, you know, put their finger on it or pinpoint it because there's so many things that happen. Um, it was just what the environment they lived in. So we're talking someone who maybe grew up in poverty, so they had food insecurity, and their parents separated, and like they had an accident and got hurt. Like we're talking about layers and layers. Um, they're proposing a diagnosis and um, the diagnostic manual that we use to um, treat mental disorders. Um, and we're, we're really hoping that it gets passed. It's called Developmental Trauma Disorder. And it's for those who have grown up in a constant, straight, a constant state of stress and trauma. So a lot of science has come out about like what that does to someone's health. Because um, your body remembers trauma. There's a great book called Your Body Keeps Score. And so our body, even on a cellular level, it remembers the stress that we felt. And it can come out later in life as disease in all shapes and, and forms. So bottom line is trauma responses can be a result of an incident or multiple incidents. But here's what I really want you guys to take away today, so I'm going to reiterate this a couple times. And Caleb kind of touched on it. It's not just, it's not so much about, I've given you like examples, but it's not so much about what happened, like what the incident is. It's about what that personal experience was with it. So I don't want to say, oh, this is less traumatizing than this. Although I will say, you know, sometimes when I, you know, when I use the word trauma to describe someone's experience and what I do, sometimes they're kind of a knee-jerk reaction of like, didn't really think that was trauma, <laughs> you know, didn't seem like that big of a deal. And so sometimes I'll use like, it was a lowercase t trauma, <laughs> but it was still a trauma. And then there's capital T trauma, which is what we maybe, you know, typically consider like, you know, you went to war or, you know, you were physically attacked and that kind of thing. Um, but what we want to do is be curious about people's experience with something and not say, you know, you experienced that and you were traumatized and that was trauma for you. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, last year, um, I saw in my practice, and um, I think she's nine-year-old. And do you guys remember those hailstorms that happened in August of 2019, I think it was? Um, so I don't know about you, but our roof had to be repaired. We had a van that was totaled. Um, it was pretty pretty big. So this nine-year-old, um, 
I would say after, you know, seeing her for a good amount of time, she was traumatized by those storms. Now, most of us would think it's a hailstorm. <laughs> you know, as long as you're in a solid structure, you're in a sturdy home or a building, you're going to be okay. It's not likely that you're going to die from a hailstorm. But that doesn't matter. What matters is she thought she was going to. She wasn't sure that she was going to survive. And so that traumatized her. So when she first came in, I thought she had like a phobia of the weather, you know, like phobias, you know, spiders, people scared, or they're scared of different things. And then as I unpacked it with her, I realized it was trauma and that kind of changed the treatment protocol. Um, but again, it's, it was about her experience. So she, you know, would, would always watch outside the window and see how much the trees were moving to see how windy it was. She would always watch the clouds and um, see how dark they were. And she was hyper-focused on the weather. And that kept her in from recess at times. That kept it, you know, it made it hard for her to even leave her home, to, like, get in the car from the house to the, the car was really, really hard. And so her parents did the best thing they could, and they brought her in to help. And just for a happy ending, she responded to treatment really well, and she's doing great. Um, so let's see. Um, another example would be um, recently I heard of a, a child whose father was incarcerated. And so, you know, when they come in, you might just assume, like, your father was put in prison. That must be the biggest issue you have. That must be trauma. And then when you start talking to her, it's like that actually was a relief to her that he went to prison because he was involved with some really unsafe people, and she was afraid for his life when he was outside of prison. So when he went into prison, her stress level actually went down. So, again, being um, curious about people's experience. Um, so let's, let's do something interactive. You guys are taking good notes, but let's like um, prepare one of your hands for something I want to show you real quick. We're going to pretend that your hand, um, this is the brain, this is the brain stem, and this is the spinal cord. You're going to tuck your thumb in and then close it down. So this is our brain. Um, and we're going to talk about a little bit, the, you, you, I'm sure you've heard about the fight, flight, or freeze, and I would also add appease, and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, but when something really stressful comes our way, and it's a threat to any sort of safety that we feel, again, whether it's psychological or physical, um, our prefrontal cortex, which is the front of our brain, it basically goes offline. It takes a hike. <laughs> and the front of our brain is where we do um, decision-making, where we use logic, where we are you know, using reasoning. Um, and that is incapacitated when we're really stressed. So you probably heard the saying, um, she flipped her lid. It's basically what we're going to do. So something stressful comes, and your lid flips. So then this is your amygdala. That is in charge of sensing danger. It like it it goes online and it starts like alerting you, like danger, danger. There's a threat, and so then we're only operating at that point in our emotional side of the brain. I call it the basement brain or the limbic system, and and that's just the emotions, and that's just like what do we do when there's a threat? You know, that's again, you're not using reason at that point. So. This is what it looks like. You flip your lid, and your amygdala is like, ah! Um, so fight, flight, freeze, or appease 
Those are pretty obvious, but let me explain them real quick. You know, when there's a threat, sometimes people resort to fighting. You know, they get aggressive. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean physically aggressive. That can also mean verbally aggressive. They just get hostile. They get defensive. Um, and then flight, obviously, you take off and run. Like sometimes I want to do when I'm public speaking, just run. <laughs> um, <laughs> like this. This is how I run. And then freeze. Um, you basically go in shutdown mode, like amygdala, brain, can't make decisions, so you're just going to shut down. And then appease would be, you know, you see the threat, but you try to win it over. <laughs> you try to appeal to its empathy or whatever it may be. Um, I sometimes think about, like, if somebody were going to, maybe this is kind of dark, but if they were going to like break in my house and try to take my kids or something, when it comes to me and my kids, this is probably what I would resort to. It'd be like, you want my money? You want my car? You want me instead? Like, take whatever. That would be trying to appease them so that they don't take what's most precious to me. So that's an example, kind of dark one, of what appease looks like. <laughs> so this brain, God created us with that response. That's what kept us alive. That's what, you know, humans have been relying on for a long, long time. It's what tells you that there's danger. Um, you know, there's a cliff. Don't get too, too, don't get too close to it. There's a bear chasing you. I don't know which one you're supposed to do. Freeze. Ah! Oh. Oh. I'm trying to remember that. Scare the bear. So I think that's hard when you're like only operating in your basement brain. <laughs> And you don't want to like resort to something else. I'll just, I'll just serve them. I'll just start dancing and see if they start. Dancing. You can tell me like to dance in our family. <laughs> so um, let's you know just talk about just that stress response. Um, like, what do we need to do to get back into like you know, our our front cortex so that we can make a logical decision? We have to calm down our body first. You have to think of it as almost like a bottom-up approach. Like, if I can calm down my body, maybe my brain will follow. <laughs> Instead of waiting until I feel calm, and then I'll move. Um, and one way you can do that, simple way, is, to, is deep breathe. So um, I'm going to teach you one of the ways that, you know, has helped me and others breathe in a way that's actually effective. Um, so it's called the box breath. And I had been told, but I went and verified, this actually is used by Navy SEALs. So I figured, you know, if Navy SEALs are using it before they jump out of a plane on a secret mission, it must be helpful. <laughs> um, so I want you to do one of two things. You can imagine a square in your head, and you can use that. You can draw it on your paper, or you can use your finger. Like sometimes I teach my client, and they can do it on their leg like this. And this actually, any of those have benefits. But anytime you can bridge what's going on in here with what's going on with your body, bridge that brain-body connection by appealing to all your senses, then that's helpful. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to either imagine, draw, or use your finger on your leg, and you're going to go up one side of the square, and you're going to breathe in through your nose for four seconds, and then you're going to hold it for four seconds, and then you're going to breathe out of your mouth for four seconds, and then you're going to hold it for four seconds. So we're going to do that together. You guys ready? Looks like this. Hold it. Breathe out fast. Hold it. Good job. Do it one more time. 
in through your nose four seconds. Hold it. Breathe out of your mouth fast. Hold it. Good job. So I found, again, I don't teach things that I wouldn't try myself. I found that it took some practicing um, for me in times of calm before that was ever helpful in times of stress. You're not going to reach for it unless it's something that's kind of been practiced. Um, and so I, I challenge you to do that and, and use it in moments of stress. And that can kind of help bring back that, that whole brain it can operate out of that. Um, so let's talk about the aftermath of a trauma. There's typically three things that are experienced. Um, you have flashbacks. You re-experience that trauma in some form. You're hypervigilant, like meaning you're always scanning your environment for threats. And you avoid stimuli. You avoid things that remind you of it. You avoid going to that place. Now, there's something that's called acute stress disorder. Um, acute meaning severe. Um, and that's a normal response to a crisis. Um, that's like you get into a car wreck, and for the following weeks, up to a month, you're stressed about riding in a car, you're scanning your environment for crazy drivers, any sort of threat out there. Um, you're avoiding having to ride in the car or driving the car any more than you want, and that's, that's normal. Like that's not abnormal. That's that's a normal a, a normal response, and that can last up to a month. If it lasts longer than that, then we're talking more like post traumatic stress disorder. That typically lasts longer. Um, it can also have what's called a delayed onset, where you might not have any of those symptoms until like six months later. It's like your brain catches up, and then you start having things like nightmares. Um, really vivid flashbacks, avoidance, things that we've talked about. So um, what I would say for myself was a lowercase t trauma, <laughs> but I'm going to use it as an example. Um, was when I was, you know, in my early years of college, this was before I met you, I think, um, I was in choir, and I participated in a jazz trio, and... We were going to perform for the faculty Christmas party. So all of the professors, instructors, all of the staff at the college were going to be there. And it was kind of a swanky event. And um, we all three were going to sing a solo as part of our song. But the song wasn't long enough for all of us to have like the same amount of lyrics or stanzas. And so I wrote my part. And <laughs> my choir teacher was really proud of me. Um, I was kind of proud of myself. I wrote my lyrics. I was like, yay. And then um, it came time for the concert. My parents were out of town, so we had some family um, friends come up from out of town to, like, support me and cheer me on. And um, came time to perform that song. Came time for me to sing my part. And I totally forgot the lyrics. Like, they were gone. And I didn't write them in my folder because I thought, I wrote these lyrics. <laughs> I can remember this. Easy enough. So the music just kept playing. Everybody's looking at me. I'm just standing at the microphone. <laughs> and um, 
that's pretty traumatic, I'll say, because not only was I so scared in that moment, so which one did I resort to? Out of the fight, fight, freeze, yeah, I totally froze. Um, my brain was, like, completely not helping me at all. Um, and I could not, like, there was no decision-making capacity at that time. There was no memory engaged. There was no logic at all. It was just literally shut down. Um, so because I felt so helpless and scared, I would classify that as a trauma, but also because it did change, like it warped the way that I saw myself. Um, I vowed to myself I would never sing a solo ever again, and I haven't. <laughs> I probably need a therapist for this. Um, <laughs> it doesn't work on yourself. No, I don't. Honestly, it wasn't that big of a loss for me, but it did change. Like, this isn't worth it. This isn't for me. And I will never put myself in this situation again. Um, so it skewed the way I saw myself and what I was participating in. So you see how that, that definitely played into, like, the trauma was the aftermath and the way that I saw things shifted. Um, and it wasn't that big of a loss because I'm not that great of a singer. He disagrees, but he's tone deaf, so don't believe him. <laughs> I think Eden disagrees too, but don't believe him either. Um, so, so let's talk about, like, some people might experience the same thing, and maybe they don't come out of it with, um, maybe they don't meet the criteria for PTSD. So what, why does one and one experience it this way and one doesn't? Let's talk a little bit about the risk factors for developing a disorder like PTSD um, or developmental trauma disorder. So those would be that individual already has emotional problems. They're already temperamental prior to the event. So they might already struggle with depression, anxiety, and then the event happens. Um, another risk factor would be the environment, kind of an obvious one. Um, research has shown if they're of lower socioeconomic status, so they're maybe experiencing poverty, if they're lower educated, if they have prior exposure to trauma, um, and also if they have childhood adversity, family dysfunction, parental separation, that kind of thing has examples. And then also research has shown if they're younger females or they're persons of color, they're more susceptible to developing a disorder following a traumatic event. So those are the risk factors. Um, let's talk a little bit about the protective factors. Like these, if you imagine, who still bowls with bumper, bumper pads? Nobody? Oh gosh, I do. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, right? Who wants to watch their ball go in the gutter every time? So these are those. These are buffers that help negate the destroying factor or the, des the destroying elements of um, trauma. And that would be supportive adult relationships. So that doesn't have to be parents. It's wonderful if it is. Um, but it can be any adult that's trusted and supported, supportive in your life. And research has shown even just one of those can make an, a big difference. Um, a sense of perceived control, self-efficacy. Like, I talk a lot of, to my clients because obviously when they come to me, I can't fix 
everything that they're experiencing. Um, even though my mom always asked me, did you solve any problems today? Well, I can't solve all their problems. <laughs> but I can help them locate where do you have some control. And so we'll draw a circle and, you know, we'll put everything that they can't control outside of that circle. Sometimes it's a lot. There's a lot going on and they, they don't have the power to change it. But then in that circle, even if it's small, we put what they do have control over. Um, so even if it doesn't seem like a big deal, even if it's like, you know, um, how hard I work on school or how I respond when things happen, like how, how I talk to my parents or others or um, how I spend my free time, what I, look at, what I look at and what I don't, how much time I spend with, with God. Those would be things that you would put in your circle. And so you hold on to anything that you have, especially in moments of adversity of like, okay, I can't control all that. I can control this. And it's important to have something that you can hold on to. Another um, buffer would be um, self-regulatory capacities. That just means you can regulate your emotions. You've learned some skills along the way. Um, your box breathing. You're um, your utilizing the resources that you have to help calm yourself. And then lastly, probably most important, especially in this environment, is sources of faith, hope, and traditions. So that's a very protective buffer when it comes to trauma and um, disorders. And Derek's going to talk more about what that looks like, but I want to point out real quick, um, sometimes we, it's helpful to distinguish the difference between grief and trauma. Um, so grief is usually experienced when there's a loss, and that does not have to be a loss of life, like someone died. It could be, um, I injured myself and I can't play sports anymore. I lost a dream of what I was going to do. Um, I moved and lost a school and um, friends that I love. Um, so grief can be experienced in all kinds of different losses. Um, but grief, the difference is, grief is mostly experienced as sadness. It's normally a response to a normal event. Sadly, someone dying is normal. Relocations can be normal. Um, so sadness is experienced. Trauma is a response to an abnormal event, something that shouldn't have happened. It wasn't you were a victim or you witnessed something that was a freak accident. That was not supposed to happen. And it's terror. Sadness, scared. Another thing would be um, grief is accompanied by remorse or regret. So it's like, you know, I wish I wish I had really treasured that thing, whatever it was, when I had it. Um, I wish I had said goodbye. I wish I had told them I loved them. That's grief. Trauma is usually experienced as guilt. It's my fault it happened. If I hadn't blank, 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 then blank, blank, blank wouldn't have happened. It's guilt. So there's an important distinction there. Just because there's a loss doesn't necessarily mean there was trauma. So what I want you to take away at least for my portion, is to be curious about yourself 
and to be curious about others. Don't assume we know what has happened and how it has affected them, because it's not so much about the incident. It is our experience and perception of the incident that matters most. So one of the most helpful things that you can say to someone is tell me what that was like for you. Tell me about how you experienced that thing. What has it meant to you since? Just really open-ended questions. So with that, any questions for me real quick? Yes. Young. <laughs> Prior to 18, probably, is what they're referring to in the research. Yeah, yes. Why are people of color most susceptible to Mm. It's hard to speak for them because I'm not one, but I can tell you because they already have often an experience of adversity just by being someone of color if they've experienced things like discrimination and racism, then they're already coming, and that was one of the things that's a risk factor for developing a disorder. So when you layer it on top of what they already might be experiencing and being disadvantaged in some way, um, then you layer it with something happened to them, you know, with a trauma on top of basically a trauma, then yeah, they're more susceptible. Does that make sense? Yes. Be curious. <laughs> and if you already know, like, okay, this was trauma after they've told you what it meant to them and how they've experienced it, um, really the best thing as a friend you can do is just listen and be supportive. Like, if they feel like they don't have a safe place to even talk about it because no one, no one can meet them in that well, basically, um, like when we're talking about sympathy versus empathy, it's like empathy is I'm going into that well with you. I'm going to sit with you in whatever you're feeling. Instead of sympathy is like, oh, sorry, you feel that way. Want a sandwich? <laughs> um, but giving them that space to be like, it's not going to scare me away. I'm here for you. I'm for you. If you want to talk about it, we can talk about it. And then ask really open-ended questions, of course. If you're afraid for anyone's safety, then that's when they need help. Um, and so you point, it, you point them to a trusted adult where they can get help. Um, you go with them even if you can, just to talk to that adult so they're not doing it alone. But if you're afraid for someone's safety or your own, reach out to an trusted adult. There are times, obviously, I'm biased, where professional help is needed. <laughs> Um, so they might need somebody outside of their circle to help them with that. And they just need to know someone's going to like hold their hand in that next step and ask them, what's your next step? What are you, you going to, what's your going to, what's your next step? What are you going to do? And what do you need from me? Or two of the most helpful questions you can ask. Okay. Anything else? Okay. That was awesome. Give her a round of applause. That was amazing. She's so awesome. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to take a, long, a lot of your time, but I definitely want to tie it in to, um, to Scripture. 
If you want to uh, open your Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 3, and as you're doing that, I kind of want to let you know who I am. Um, I have a license in addiction counseling. I also am going to school uh, to become a mental health counselor as well. So the, the difference is, is uh, as an addiction counselor, I come alongside those that, um, well, are sick and tired of being an addict and they want to go into recovery. So I help them through that, okay, that journey, and uh, I can bill them. Now, as a mental health counselor, uh, you can bill for other, uh, other diagnoses. And so um, my goal is to become dual licensed, okay, meaning I can have two licensures I can bill for. I'm also a trained pastor as well. And so I pastored for a while. Uh, before I became a counselor, and uh, I was, I'm also a veteran, so an Air Force veteran. I was a medic uh, for 10 years uh, in the Air Force, and so um, a lot of the things that Janet talked about um, through my childhood and through my professions, I have seen, witnessed, and so uh, I can validate uh, what she is saying and affirm those things, okay? I'm not going to go, I'm not going to get into my story. I was, but uh, for the sake of time, uh, we're going to see what God has to say about what Janet just said. So beautiful thing is, is that for the last 50 years or more, uh, science has come out with a lot of awesome stuff about mental health and emotional health. A lot of stuff about the brain, right? So got like a cool fist brain thing, right? Okay, power to the brain. Okay. And so a lot of cool stuff about the brain. The cool thing is, is that God has already got that taken care of. He already thought about it way before we did, okay? Science just had to get up, get to the front, right? And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We're just going to stop there, because that's all she wrote, right? What did Janet just say? She just asked, uh, a, a, an individual asked about, what should I do? Well, as a believer... You have the Holy Spirit God within you. Am I correct? If you're a believer, if you're sitting here and you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit God within you. Am I correct? Okay. So as a believer, having the wisdom to come alongside somebody, this is the beautiful part, is that you've already experienced pure love. Did you know that? When you come to Christ, you already experienced purest love possible. Therefore, you are able to love. That's a simple equation. Absolutely simple. You have met the lover of all lovers. And he showed you that on the cross. Not only did he die for your sins, but he rose again, giving you victory over death, sin, and the enemy. He's given you victory. He's given you hope already. And so as a believer, you have, you have a tool. I mean, you have the advantage to sit with somebody. You are 
you probably heard this, but an ambassador of Christ. What does an ambassador mean? Can someone tell me? Oh, come on, students. A representative. Thank you, Eden. A representative. You're a representative of Christ. Now, okay, so does, do other countries, do we have ambassadors in other countries? Okay, what does that mean? What does that mean when you have an ambassador, let's just say, in Germany? What does that mean? What does that person have the power to do? What? Representing who? Representing our nation to them, right? But who exactly is they representing? Who has given them the power to be an ambassador? The president. So they are the, they represent the president in Germany or whatever nation, okay? The same thing you, you represent, you have the power, the ability that Christ has given you to be an ambassador, to represent him at school, in your home, on the streets, with your friends, on the team. And so Paul is a representative, an ambassador, and an apostle of Christ Jesus. Look at the before verses. At the beginning, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and a messenger of Christ Jesus. And he says this. Now, I don't know if you know Paul, but man, you talk about trauma. Being stoned to death almost. Being pushed out of towns. Being ridiculed, being mocked. For the sake of Christ. For the sake of the gospel. And he says this. Three things I want you to take away and we'll be done, okay? Three things and we'll be done. I know it's almost, it's past your bedtime, I get it, okay? No? Past my bedtime, on. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, when you are at the hope, most, the darkest place in your life, the hope is in Christ our Lord the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are looking down, look up. When I I came to Christ at 16 years old, how many people are 16? 15, 16, 17. Okay. I was 16 years old when I came to Christ. I was in a very dark place in my life. I had nowhere to go. I was very, I was helpless. I was empty inside. And it was as simple as talking to God, really. I'd, God, I don't know what to say to you. I never prayed in my life, but I need you. Someone told me that you can help me. And no one else around me is helping me, but I don't know what to do. I mean, that was as simple as it got. Somebody came around, came alongside me and helped me understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it was that simple. God, help me. Just God, help me. I need you more than ever. I don't know what that looks like, but I need you. And he came into my life and he began to transform me. Not saying that there wasn't any more trauma after that or more experiences or conflict or whatever. But I had a guide. I had comfort. I had hope. Now, then what does he say? 
the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Hey, it doesn't matter what you have done. God is merciful. Think about that for a second. What does mercy mean? Does anyone, can anyone tell me? Has Pastor Caleb talked about mercy? Of course he has. I know he has. What? Come on. What does mercy mean? Go ahead. Not getting what you deserve. You say it like it's like it's like a casual thing, but that's so heavy. That's so heavy. Think about that. Not getting what you deserve. We've all made mistakes. We've all made poor choices. God has the right. He has the right to judge you. He has the right and the power to do that. He is a just God. And He decides to be merciful to you and to those that have wronged you. Reconciliation, shall we? (laughs) Forgiveness, right? It's a process. Not saying that tonight and tomorrow you're just going to forgive people or people are going to forgive you, whatever. What I'm saying is a process. This is what why and a trusted adult comes alongside you. I'm biased. I think we're biased. I think your youth leaders, your pastor, would be great at this. Because they know the purest of love and what it has done in their life. Okay, so God's merciful, right? And he's and he comforts those that are brokenhearted. He comforts those that are hopeless. So you don't have to raise your hand. And I'm going to be honest with you. I have been comforted by God in my life, in some really troubled times in my life. Even when I didn't feel like He was there, He was there. I have felt His mercy in my life. Even when I didn't deserve it. And so, I'm charging you with this. As Paul has charged his readers and his audience, comfort those around you. Janet said it. Show empathy. Be empathetic. If you're not, try it sometime. (laughs) One of the the things that I have seen, I'm just going to be, this is it right here. This is kind of, I'm going to be done after this. But I want to be very honest with you. I, I don't sugarcoat anything, okay? I just don't. I don't have time for it. Okay, we don't have time on this earth to sugarcoat anything. And I'm just going to be truthful. Is that in the youth today, and, the, and when we were youth leaders, apathy runs wild. You know what apathy is? What's apathy? No, I don't care. It doesn't hurt me. Doesn't, I don't care. Suit. I'm not affected by it. I don't care. I'm just to be honest with you. I mean, it, it, it's just reality. And so what I'm trying to charge you, and I think what God's trying to charge you is to think about 
and ponder on empathy. Empathy. Actually give a darn about somebody else. How about that? Care about somebody else. I'm not saying you're not. I'm just saying that I've seen it and I've experienced it in other youth. I'm sure that everyone in here is empathetic. The reason why I'm saying this is because I did not come to Christ because somebody put a Bible in my hand and told me the gospel. You know how I came to Christ? Because somebody loved on me. (laughs) Because somebody actually cared about me. I had to experience the love of Christ before I experienced him as my savior. And I only found that through the saints. And if you are a believer, the Bible calls you a saint. And I'm grateful that you are because if it wasn't for one of you, I wouldn't be standing before you today.